Welcome to Totally Lit, a monthly podcast celebrating reading, writing and creating literature. I'm your host Kai, thank you for listening. My guest this episode is multi-award winning author Alison Booth. Born in Melbourne and brought up in Sydney, Alison spent over two decades studying, living and working in the UK before returning to Australia some 15 years ago. Alison's debut novel, Stillwater Creek, was highly commended in the 2011 ACT Book of the Year Award and afterwards published in Reader's Digest Select Editions in Asia and in Europe. Her subsequent novels are The Indigo Sky, A Distant Land, A Perfect Marriage and The Philosopher's Daughters. Alison's latest novel is called The Painting, which will be published on the 15th of July 2021. Alison's other interests are in economics and public policy, and she is Emeritus Professor at the Australian National University. Welcome, Alison, to Totally Lit. Thank you so much for making time to chat with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's lovely to meet you. It's always good to make new writing friends, I think. Um, I've met some lovely people, so I'm glad to include you in my circle now. Um, Now, you've got a new book coming out, is that right? Um, Could you tell me about your new novel, The Painting? Yes, Um, the new novel is set in 1989, and it's about a young Hungarian woman, an immigrant, um, who arrives in Sydney with a painting, and then she has to confront her family's past because the painting gets stolen. And it's a double mystery, so, um, and I want to make sure I don't come up with any plot spoilers, but there's, first of all, there's a mystery about who steals the painting and it is stolen. And then there's a mystery about how the painting got into the family in the first place. So that's, that's basically it. And the, the idea of using the painting it's like a metaphor if you like for all that was going on in the lives of the main character Annika and her parents and aunt and her grandmother in particular so that's in a nutshell what the book's about um so it's would you class it as A mystery or a historical fiction? What sort of genre does it fall under? um, Historians would call it historical fiction. Hmm. But one thing I've learnt recently is that the Historical Novel Association, both here and abroad, they don't view something set in 1989 as historical fiction. Right. It needs to be 50 years ago to be historical fiction. So um, while I view it as historical fiction, and my historian friends also view it as historical fiction, strictly speaking, according to the novelist's definition, it's not. So to answer your question um, more briefly, Yes, I view it as historical fiction. It's also a mystery and a bit of a thriller and a story of love as well. To call it a love story, I think, would be a bit strong because it's not your conventional Mm. romantic love story. 
but it's also about love between the generations. Um, and so I think it could be viewed as a, as a love story. Now, I've been working my way through, and I'm not through to the end yet of your novel, um, but I did notice the beautiful language that you use. I've really been enjoying that, and um, you're quite detail-orientated with your descriptions as well, which I've been enjoying, like you, when you're describing people and place, you're really um, taking me there, which I enjoy. Um, I did notice on page four you mentioned interest rates, which um, leads me to my next uh, question, which is your background is in economics and public policy. How did you move from that background into writing? Um, well, I'd always thought I would like to write a novel and my father wrote a novel and published it and when I was at school I wrote my first novel in year five. An early it, starter. An early starter. <laughs> we had a wonderful teacher who decided that in a weekly English composition that was called Class, we would were each to write a chapter of a novel and we went right through the term writing a chapter of a novel and that's how I ended up with my first novel and it was very much in the Swallows and Amazon mould. Right. In fact Swallows and Amazon, I don't know if you've seen the recent film, there's a rather lovely film, it's, I think we saw it on ABC ID or maybe SBS On Demand and they'd, they'd sort of sexed up the story by introducing a spy into it. Right. And I thought, well, something like that is a little bit along the lines of what I've become in my adult life because this new novel is a little bit of the mystery element and the behind-the-iron-curtain aspect. Mm. So in that sense, it's related to my very first novel that was in the um, Swallows and Amazon tradition. So you're, you were a writer first, then an economist, is that safe to say? You, you could say that, I, yes. I, my first degree was actually in architecture, which is why it was easy for me in writing this mm. novel to have the main character be an architecture student. Mm. Um, and I called up some of my old friends to ask them whether in 1989 everybody used computer-assisted design mm. then or whether they were still using the old drafting techniques. And um, only one of them said that they were using um, CAD drawing mm. techniques. So what Annika is doing in the book in her job is very much what we were trained to do when I was an undergraduate. Right. Anyway, after that, I decided that I wanted to do economics so I went off to the London School of Economics and did a master's and then I loved it so much I did a PhD mm. and I loved that so much I decided to become an academic in economics mm. and that was my career. And then in the late 1990s I decided that if I wanted to write a novel I should get on with, with it. And I always had wanted to write a novel. Um, so I decided I should get onto it. And then I began that venture by writing short stories. Mm. And I published a few 
And they are really hard, short stories. Short stories are hard. Um, I did see on your website that you've got a link to some of your short stories. Yes. And that's um, one thing I'm, I'm always juggling is um, work life and my creative life. And um, how did you approach that while you were still working? How did you fit your writing in? With difficulty, but I'm a very organised sort of person. I think anyone with a family has to be very organised. If you've got a family, you know, work life, you have to be organised, otherwise you just can't do it. So that was very useful. And I began by setting aside a certain amount of time each day that, you know, not long, just when I could fit it in. I mean, it might only be half an hour, but the subconscious is thinking about it even when you're doing something else, I found. And I guess my advice to people who are starting out like I was to write a novel is to aim to do, write at least 300 words a day. I mean, that doesn't seem like very much, but if you keep on doing it every day... It all adds up, doesn't it? It all adds up, yes. And um, do you look at writing a novel, do you almost construct a novel novel like you would in architecture? Do, do you plan it out in that way or do you let it flow? That's a very good question because in, in economics, I think the economics thinking and the architectural thinking are slightly different. But I think that the architectural thinking is probably a closer parallel for a novel because... Mm. It, you're sort of walking around the characters. It's three-dimensional. And so I really like that idea that when you've created a novel, and, and especially when you come to edit it, you have to move around it, like around a piece of sculpture or building. You pull bits out, and you see if the structure's still standing. You pop another bit in, you see if it's going to fall over. Um, so I think that's a very good analogy. With regard to economics... I think that economics teaches, it, it's a very logical discipline. And I really like that. I mean, it, it, my intellectual life, if you like, is a eternal trying to balance the logic, which came very much from my father, and the emotions, which came from my mother. Mm. And economics is very useful for balancing that. And in terms of writing a novel, what I've done with all my books, except for this one, was to work out beforehand where I was going. And then to, and normally my novels, except for this one, have been from a number of different points of view. And so what I've done with that is to have each character gets a column and then I do their storyline, their, their narrative arc. And then if I have six characters, which I did in my first novel, six points of view, there were six columns and then, you know, moving across with the scenes. And that's a very useful structure because you can see how the story arcs are developing as you work through it and make sure that one character is not too dominant 
in the overall story that you're telling. And what sort of time frame does that take you um, to plan all of that out? Well, it's organic, really, because I think of something to begin with. I think I get the idea and I think of the characters I'd like to have, they pop along and they get written into this table. And then after two weeks of writing, the table has to be revised Mm. because new things have popped up. Um, So it's just a way of organising my thoughts initially and then working through it and and monitoring it to make sure it doesn't get too unbalanced. So that's basically the way I plot. But with this new novel, I didn't do it like that. I've only got one character point of view, Annika, the young woman, and she originally wrote her in first person and first person present tense, which I didn't like after I'd done the first couple of drafts. And so, yeah, so how would she look if she's third person? So I went through and changed it all to third person perspective. And then I realized something which I hadn't realized before that for for me, for the way I write, it's possible to get closer to a character with the third person than it is with the first person. Because with the third person you get some, I suppose it's the narrator's perspective is inevitably mixed up with the protagonist's perspective. And that allows you to make it a slightly more rounded character. I think. So that was a lesson for me. It took a lot of work naturally to change that. But then, yeah, and I had to do it again because I decided that the the present tense didn't work. I decided. Mm. And someone who read it told me that they thought it would be better in the third person as well. And so I changed it again. And I liked the result. And it, it's funny, really, because I, the first short story I ever published was a rather ambitious story written in three points of view, which is ambitious for a short story. And yes. each was in the first person, present tense. And it is a challenge. <laughs> three different characters, but really from yeah, first that person. Point. That one worked, but it didn't work for this novel, so that, that went out the door. And and where do you get your inspiration for the story? Is it from stories you've heard, movies, other books that you've read? No, not really. The Although probably there are all sorts of influences that I'm not aware of. Do you want me to go back a bit to the first books, or would you like to just stick to this book? Um, well, let's, let's stick with um, the current novel, the painting. Um, yeah. Because, um, yeah, it is an interesting um, premise. Um, is that something that just popped into your head, or is it something that was percolating for a while? I think what was percolating for a long time, and which bobs up in other books as well, is the idea of immigrants. Um, And so this is an immigrant's experience. Mm. And when I was young, when I was at university in particular, 
for my first degree, I met people, girls and boys, men and women, who were the children of Hungarian refugees. Mm. So I'd always found Hungary very interesting. And also I, I remember discovering in my father's study a book which had a very graphic picture in it of a Russian tank rolling into Budapest. And this turned out to be the 1956 uprising. Right. And that, that image that I saw in this book made a really vivid impression on me, mm. a black and white image, very strong, frightening. And so that, that was sort of simmering away in my memory and mind. And then I read an article, this is what I call my what-if moment. It was an article in The Guardian, and it was about an art collection that a family had found when their parents died. They found that their parents had been collecting this beautiful collection of artwork, artworks. Mm. They were all by Hungarian artists. And it turned out that the at the time they'd been collecting, um, if you managed to save any money, you w weren't supposed to bank it. Um, and so they, they bought, on the black market, they bought paintings. Mm. And so I thought, well, what if, what if my character was caught up in some story like that? Mm. What if she headed off to Australia to get away from the regime that she was suffering under? And her family gave her a painting as she left. And so that, that was my what if moment from that reading that newspaper report. Mm. And then wondering what sort of story could be told based on that. And then drawing on my own experiences. Now, I used to think that nothing of me was ever written into my fiction. Uh, but I've realized. Creeped in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've realized how wrong I was on that front. Um, so, stuff creeps in. And even to the extent that my. My mother and my grandmother liked to collect paintings as well. Nothing on the scale of this, mm. this collection, but they liked to collect paintings. And I've still got a couple of those on the walls. So that was, um, what did you ask me again? Oh, my what if moment. Yeah, yeah. just what, what, where did the story come from, I guess, is really yes. what I'm asking. Yes, it came from a variety of sources, mm -hmm. yes. I find it quite interesting, um, this interview must have meant to have been because um, my uncle was actually an immigrant from Hungary and he came across oh, really? um, and uh, nothing exciting happened like uh, him having a painting, um, but I did see how his everyday life was affected by him coming from a war-torn country and having to come across to Australia, like they had to come across on a ship, and then they were in a um, internment camp, but with I think with Italians, um, and then his everyday life. When I was a child, going to their house, he would be 
very um, pedantic about how clean the house was and he would be up very early in the morning vacuuming and everything had to be very, very clean. Um, his children were always allowed to take food off his plate because it was like my children will never be denied anything like what we went through um, and always um, worrying about when the next war would come as well so things like hoarding and yeah. squirreling away yeah. and I found that very interesting that that fear stays with people even after the the challenges are gone but it, they can't yeah. ever relax um, so I found that very interesting to observe as a child and but he was a very warm lovely man which was um I always have fond memories of him, but thinking of someone that you love going through those traumas yes, is um, yes. difficult because we have such a safe life here in Australia as well. We do, uh, yes, yes. Um, yeah, um, so how do you approach the research side of historical fiction? Well, focusing on this book, which is a fairly typical approach, basically I read some novels that were set in Budapest and at the same time I read history, what I could find that interested me and I found some, quite a lot actually, it was just fascinating doing that reading um, and I could tell you about, I could tell you quite a lot about that but you may want me to be rather focused rather than rambling on about these books but I had a fabulous time because I love reading history. Mm. And I didn't know much about what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. Mm. And one of the things that I found was really interesting was when I, I, I listened to the audio book of Tony Judd's wonderful book called Post War. And that's about the period from the end of the Second World War right up to the early um, part of the century. And in it, he made the point a couple of times that the First World War didn't really end, the Second World War, I mean, mm. didn't really end until in Europe, until the fall of the Soviet Union mm. in 1991, which I thought was a very interesting point, and it's borne out really about in his exploration of what was happening with the division of Europe after the Second World War mm. and the fact that the Soviet Union was so keen to control all those countries in Central, Eastern Europe, Poland and so on, Hungary, of course. Um, so that I got sort of excited by that big picture. And obviously, I couldn't have much detail in the novel, so I had to be really selective and... Another book I found really fascinating was called The Siege of Budapest. Mm. And that was about the, the Russians and the Germans fighting for control of Budapest in 1940, I think it was 44, 45. And that provided a very vivid picture of what it was like. In fact, it was very traumatic picture but it was very stirring and important to the way I thought about what was happening um, and then I had to read about the Hungarian revolution mm. and I was interested in what, with what you said about your uncle so did he come across 
after the Second World War, or was it after? Um, I think it was after the Second World War. They they kind of decided it wasn't very safe to stay there, and they I know they had like crossed the Alps or something like that. There was, um, and this is all my memories from a, being a small child hearing the story, so it doesn't sound as. Um, I've just got snippets of what happened rather than yeah. and and because they've passed now I don't really have yeah. any way to find out all the details but um yeah they they pretty much escaped from Hungary and arrived on a boat here with other immigrants and um there was some um, stories of that his mother had swallowed her gold wedding ring so that she could keep it hidden and then uh, I was yeah. horrified by that because that sounded disgusting to a little girl <laughs> It was really the only way that they could keep their valuable safe yeah. and things like that. Um, and so the concept of that, yeah, when you're a, a tiny little girl, you, you, your imagination can't stretch as far as what they're actually, they've lived through. Um, yes. But I did observe, because I'd spent many holidays staying with my cousins, I did observe behaviour that was different from my own family, which I, I recognised was from their previous experiences in life, because um, my parents weren't, um, yeah, behaved in a, a different way at home. And I was like, oh, this it does seem to stem from fear that we're going to have a war again and have to, we'll have to run away. Um, which, yes. um, so I think that yeah. always stays in your mind if you've been through those experiences, if it's a lived experience yes. that you've had. Um, yeah, and, um, but I know that he, he seemed to want to make sure that his family never went through what he had gone through as a boy. He wanted to make yeah. sure his daughters were safe and didn't ever experience that. Um, yes, and I suppose he never wanted to go out of Australia either. No, no, I don't recall. I think he was quite happy um, being a settled family man uh, in his later yes. years. So, yes. Mm. yes, yes, so that there's, um, because my family is very, um, I don't have that sort of richness of experience in my family, so I had to read Mm. extensively to to learn about that and there's one Hungarian um, it's a journalist actually who lives in London his name is Victor um, well the name temperate escapes me for the moment um, anyway he's written some fabulous books um, about Hungary and about Europe one's 1946 1989 and the 12 days of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. It only lasted 12 days. And I read those with a great deal of interest and he writes very vividly. Um, so it was not difficult to read them. They're lovely books. Um, he's got one on Budapest coming out next year, which I'm looking forward to reading. Um, so that's how I did the research. And then after I'd done all that and I'd done maybe the third last draft. We went on a trip. Um, my husband and I went on a trip to Budapest, and that's when I managed to get a feel for the city, which was very important because it was different 
to what I'd imagined. Mm. It was smaller. It, it, yes, it was just so important. And I was thinking the other day how fortunate I was to have done that trip to Budapest before all of this travel, these travel restrictions came in. Now there's no chance to go. (laughs) Uh, No, that's right. Uh, And so when you're riding, do you ever get rider's block or have any difficulties moving past a certain point? Mm, No, I don't. Because if I get stuck, I mean, I did get stuck, clearly. Um, But if I get stuck, I go and do something else in the manuscript. Um, And this is where multiple viewpoints are actually helpful. I couldn't do that in this novel, but in the other ones where there's more than one viewpoint, you can move into the other person's viewpoint and you're unlikely to get stuck in two people's viewpoints. Or if you are, you probably need a holiday. Um, So, no, I don't get writer's block, really. And and do you know the ending of your story before you start writing? Yes. That's my biggest issue is (laughs) I don't know how my novel ends yet. (laughs) Well, I mean, it depends on what you you mean by the ending because the final scene always presents itself to me. But Mm. but if it's a complicated, or if it's a mystery, it's yours a mystery, then I might not know the ending. Mm. I mean, this one I didn't know. I knew the last scene, last two scenes, but I didn't know who'd done what very clearly. I just had a feel for it. How difficult is it to craft that mystery through the novel? I found in this book it was difficult. It was more difficult in this book than the other books. I think because I was getting so absorbed by the history that I might have lost sight at one point, like after draft 10 maybe, I did a lot of drafts, um, of who had done what. Mm. And it's no good writing a mystery if you don't know who's done it, so to Mm. speak. So that was a bit of a, if if you view that as a writer's block, well, I did have one in that sense. That I didn't know who had done it. And I love to write short stories that have a little bit of a twist at the end, so you don't know it's coming until it hits you. Oh, lovely. I love those. But some people say that readers don't like to feel like they've been tricked. Um, how, how do you feel trying to share a mystery with your readers when you really are withholding the ending until the end? I don't have any trouble with that. I mean, I have trouble getting to that point, mm. you know, working it all out. But I think I think readers like to be get a surprise. Mm. I totally uh, agree. <laughs> <laughs> but I love to read a mystery where I can't pick what has happened. Like if you've already seen it, it's sort of like, oh, you've already given the cat's out of the bag, I know what's happened, but I love those yeah. mysteries where you get to the end and you're quite shocked by what the ending was. So. Yes, yes. I'm going to have to read your short stories because I love things with a twist in them. I think it gives, it, it's, it indicates that it's a clever story and I like that. Mm. 
I'm, I'm not quite sure how, how clever I might actually be. <laughs> um, I'm more, um, I'm an unorganised writer, so usually I start and the um, ending happens when it ends. So <laughs> I'm quite surprised where it's gone as well when I finish. You've got a strong intuition. Um, maybe. <laughs> I'm still learning to own myself as a writer as well I'm, I'm still sort of getting my confidence that I've, um, I'm a bit bashful with my work still <laughs> but um, as I as I progress I, I will um, yeah be more confident with my work I think um, do you have any tips for emerging writers on how to maintain their writing stamina when writing novel length pieces yes I think my advice, and, and this may not work for, for others, is to make sure you write a minimum every day. And when I first started out, my minimum, I tried to make it a thousand words, but I found that was way too much. Mm. I couldn't do that. So I reduced it to 500, and then in practice recently I've done maybe 300 because... If, if you have a more modest goal, it's achievable. And then then you don't get disappointed and frustrated if you haven't been able to do your 1,000 mm. words. And for me, 300 words really works. And I think for novelists emerging, I think it's very important that they just keep on and on and on doing it mm. um, and recognising the fact that it's going to be a very long haul. Mm. It's going to take them months to do a complete first draft and then it will take them months more, possibly years more to do the revisions and that's a, to my mind that's a fun part doing doing the revisions. When it, when it, the story is written and you're going back through. Yes because yeah. then you don't have that hurdle of you know how am I going to get my 80, 90,000 words written. Yes. And I think that's such a daunting thing when you start out, you know, the thought you've got all those words in front of you. And so if you have that daily goal of 300, 500 words that you do without fail, even if they're crappy, you know, you've done them and you can come back and sort it out later. So that's my advice. And the second piece of, of advice I was going to say to read widely, but not while you're writing a novel, because I think that influences you too much. Right. Mm. So I think it's best to do the wide reading at another time. Okay, so I've got a few fun questions to ask you, just so your readers and um, fellow authors can learn a bit about you as a person. Um, did you have a favourite book growing up? Yes, that's a big um, period growing up. It took me a long time to grow up. <laughs> um, so Swallows and Amazons early on. Then when I was a teenager, I really, really liked reading Patrick White. Mm. And so those, and I think my all-time favourite Patrick White is probably Riders in the Chariot. Yep. And I do like to read we read Patrick White regularly because his language is so very beautiful mm, yes. and his psychological insights are so profound. Okay, he's, sometimes he's rather horrible about his characters, but, <laughs> um, but I love his work. 
So that was my favourite book when I was a teenager. And did you have a book character that you would have liked to have been when you were growing up? When I was growing up? Oh, no. Or now. Or now is fine as well. (laughs) Well, now, now I am reading... Or when I say reading, I'm actually listening to audiobooks of Charles Dickens. And I've listened to David Copperfield, Nicholas Nickleby, and I'm presently listening to Great Expectations, which I don't like as much as the others. But I guess I wouldn't have minded being David Copperfield once he'd grown up. Because mm. I think he was a lovely character. Yes. Um, and wh- what are you reading right now? Are you reading any, are you just li- listening to audio books or are you reading any um, novels, hard copy novels? Yes, I, I um, and actually I've forgotten what I read most recently. I, I finished yesterday a book that my husband gave me for my birthday, on a biography of Stalin, oh. which is sort of continuing. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> That wasn't yesterday. The first day wasn't yesterday. I finished the book yesterday. It's a great thick book. Um, A dreadful character he was, dreadful man. Um, And the other, I'm just, Yar Giazzi, I think, was the most recent one that I read rather than listened to it. And that's spelled Y-A-A-G-Y-A-S-I. And the one I... I really loved of hers that I read recently. It's called The Home Going. And it was such a clever book. It's about um, slavery in Africa over a very long time period. And she does that just superbly. She's a brilliant writer, um, a young black American novelist. So that's what I'm currently absorbed in. Um, and this one's just a little bit of a fun one. If you could invite five literary people to dinner, who would they be? Do they have to be alive? Or... No, they can they... be in, in the past. Oh, they could be in the past. Well, I think Charles Dickens would be a good person to have. He was apparently very entertaining. Yes, wouldn't, wouldn't he be interesting to have a Yes, and then Anna Burns who wrote The Milkman, which was set in Northern Ireland. Mm. And that's such a brilliant book. I would love to meet her. Um, Kate Grenville. Um, she's amazing. Yes, yeah, she is amazing. Such a great writer. Yes, such a wonderful, wonderfully perceptive, a bit like Patrick White in that psychological observation. And Toni Morrison, I think I'd like to have as well. Oh, yes, I love Toni Morrison. Yes. Surely, so Patrick White would be there as well. Have I said five or six? Yes, he should be there. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) No, he should be there, definitely. It can be a bigger party if you want. Yeah, I think Patrick might as well. I'm not quite sure how well he'd get on with Charles Dickens. But... That would be it an would interesting be very conversation, interesting. wouldn't yes. it? <laughs> and you, so you have said to emerging writers, write every day. Do you have any advice that you would give to writers about how to get started? 
in the sense of how would they start there? Yeah, I think um, for those people that are feeling daunted about writing 80,000 to 100,000 words um, and are they have the idea in their head but they haven't um, started the journey yet. Well, I think they've got the idea in their head. Maybe they want to start at further in the novel rather than worry about that stumbling block of the first chapter or the second chapter. And I don't know. Okay, get started in the middle. Yes, further in. Instead of yeah, the, the beginning. Okay. Because I do think that first chapter is, it can be a hurdle. In my case, I, I found the first chapter difficult. And so rather than let that stop you, I think it's better to say, okay, well, I'll come back and fine-tune that later. Um, and I'm just going to start where the story begins. And then maybe that will work out for them as being the appropriate place for the first mm. chapter. Okay, so just get started somewhere. Yes, yeah, that's right. Just get started somewhere. And do you have, looking back at yourself before you started writing, um, is there any advice you'd give to yourself way back when? Don't do it, I suppose. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't do no, it. No, 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 I wouldn't do that because I think writing brings so much peace actually i mean it's very difficult and that's frustrating but you get into that world of the imagination and brings you i think the concentration brings you peace so we wouldn't have all those wonderful stories alison if you didn't do it <laughs> well, thank you um so i think the other thing to bear in mind is that it's it's a very long apprenticeship Mm -hmm. And it, don't be put off by that. If, if you want to write, don't be put off by the fact that it's going to take you a long time to, unless you're very lucky, to get anywhere with it. And I think the other thing is not to expect that you're going to earn money from it. No. <laughs> it's a labour of love, that is for Exactly. Sure. Yes, it's a labour of love, indeed. And the other thing, I think, is to... Um, ignore rejections. Don't let rejections get you down. Did you have rejections when you first started out? I had rejections after I got going. I mean, it, everything can feel like a rejection. Um, you know, the first agent that you try rejects you. I had a lot of luck with my first novel, um, but I, I know it was luck. And I think it's important not to be knocked over by these rejections. Mm. And publishing is hard, and it's probably going to get harder. Yes. Oh, that, that's how the podcast has actually come about, because I felt the need. Um, I had a lot of work sitting out waiting to get responses, and sometimes I haven't had any response or it's just a polite no, but I felt like I needed to continue to create and that um, I've decided I'm going to be a writer and I'm not changing my mind but I need to feel like I'm moving forward in some way and that's how this has yeah. happened. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Mm. Um, it keeps me sane while I'm waiting for the rejections. <laughs> um, so I know that 
you've only just finished this work and it's coming out in July, but what what's next? Have you, have you got another book in you that's going to be worked on? Yes, yes, I do. And it's going to be set in the early 1970s in Australia, of course. And the Australian landscape is really important to me. And mm. in this novel, it, it's going to be really important to the main characters, main two characters, because there are two of them. Um, so the plan is to write it from the perspective of a 50-year-old woman and a 10-year-old boy. And so that's what I have in mind. And it will be a story about revenge and retaliation set within this pristine landscape. So we shall see. So it's got a dark themes. Yes, dark themes in the beautiful Australian landscape. But it's, it's not going to be... Um, it's not going to be uh, an outback thriller. I'd love to be able to write an outback thriller, but I don't feel the outback the way I feel the eastern part of Australia. Where you, you're from Brisbane, aren't you? I'm originally, I was born in Melbourne, uh, yes. um, but I've lived in Sydney and, and now we're based in Brisbane. Yes. So I've had the, the whole east side of Australia is home to me. Oh, that's a lovely position to be in. My, mine is Melbourne, Sydney and Canberra. But I think, it, I think the landscape that we have on the east coast really gets absorbed into you and yes. it comes out in your writing as well, probably. And each city and town has its own personality as well. Like there's lovely things about every place that I've lived, um, but they're all so different from each other. Um, I am very fond of Brisbane. I've been here nearly nine years. Yeah, so ten years next year. And I'm quite fond of the... There's still a country town vibe here, so um, but you can access the big city stuff in Brisbane as well. Oh, so yeah. I kind of like that. Yeah, that, that along the river, it's lovely. That whole area along the river is just gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. so I think this will be home for a while now. Um, um, I think now we're at the end of our chat. Uh, thank you so much, Alison, for sharing some insights about writing and about your your work um and i look forward to getting to the end of your novel and finding out the answer to the mystery well i hope you enjoy it and thank you very much for inviting me along i've enjoyed others conversation and there's more that i'd like to ask you but i shan't <laughs> you have inspired me to reach out to my cousins and find out a little bit more about their origins now in Hungary. Yeah, there might be. Because um, I know there. I don't know enough. Uh, you never know. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Alice. Bye. Take care. Writing stories for children can seem like a very simple task, but there is a skill involved in bringing memorable characters and their worlds to life. Anyone can write a picture book, but not everyone can write a picture book that becomes a child's favourite bedtime story. The best children's picture books fire up their imaginations, evoke emotion, and stay within their memories forever. 
Authors Online was created to provide aspiring authors the knowledge, skills and resources they need to become a published children's book author. Our extensive industry knowledge will be shared with you and provide you with the basic principles behind writing for children, picture book publishing guidelines and updates on the current market and publishing environment. And as a special offer for Totally Lit listeners, if you go to authorsonline.com.au, you can apply the discount code of LIT20, that's lit two zero to access discount content at authorsonline.com.au. Thank you to Alison for joining me to chat about her writing career and her latest novel, The Painting. Alison's titles can be ordered from good bookstores and are also available from online booksellers in both paper and electronic form. They are also available in large print editions and audio books. Ask your library to order copies in if you prefer to read a library edition. And if you like Alison's books, provide a review or a rating on Goodreads or on other review sites to spread the word. Alison is active on social media, Twitter and Facebook, and loves doing radio and other interviews. Alison also loves hearing from readers, so drop her a note on her contact page at www.alisonbooth.net if you'd like to stay in touch. Now, last episode, I gave everybody my email address. So if you've got any awards or achievements or you've got something being published, send me an email and I'll give you a shout out on the podcast. Today, I've got a shout out for Anthology Angels. They've got a anthology coming out called Once Upon a Whoops, Fractured Fairy Tales and Ridiculous Rhymes. It's available the 1st of September and a few awesome writers have been included in that. We are in including Danielle Vieira, Jenny Catalano, Sandia Rose, Misty Del Moland. So a big shout out to you guys for getting um, your stories in there. I can't wait to read them. And any listeners out there that might have something to celebrate, send it through to totallylitpodcast at gmail.com and I'll give you a shout out on the podcast. That's all for this uh, episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Alison um, and her talk about some tips and tricks with her writing. And we'll see you next episode. Bye.